want to shout out to all of those men whose wives are at the women's retreat and you still made it and you still, and particularly Byron, can you stand up for just a moment? Stand up for just a second, please. Okay, I believe that Diane set this outfit out for Byron prior to her leaving. So handsome, making me feel like I'm underdressed. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We um, are beginning a series through the book of Acts, and Acts is really like um, volume two of Luke's history of Jesus's ministry. In, in, in Luke's gospel, he talked about Jesus's life, his ministry, ultimately culminating in his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, and ultimately his ascension into heaven. And then he comes to the book of Acts in which he begins to step back and go, okay, if Jesus's entry into the world was like the kingdom of God crashing into our reality, it's like a rock hitting a pond, then Acts begins to chart those ripples of the gospel message beginning to go out first in Jerusalem, then into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And for the disciples... It was a scary thing because all of a sudden God is saying to them, these people who had been following him and are just kind of like the, not the cream of the crop, you know, these are more just kind of the people going, can we even be used? And he's saying, you're going to be my representatives. And he transforms a people from a scared group of disciples huddling in an upper room, terrified that they're going to be arrested and perhaps the same fate that followed Jesus is going to, to land on them, to all of a sudden radically changing the world. They became the torchbearers that a, a fire was lit in Jerusalem that still burns brightly today some 2,000 years later. And so we are still in Acts chapter 1. Last week we only covered eight verses. And so in order to help get context, because it's important for us to understand how these things flow. If we break things out of context, we can easily twist them to basically say anything that we want. So just to keep our context here, I'm going to begin with verse 1, kind of take a running start into the section we're going to look at today. And so we'll begin and read all of Acts chapter 1, and then we'll dive in. And for those of you who are visiting, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you guys are here with us. I had two cups of coffee, so strap in. Here we go. In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus is a guy that probably was like a financial sponsor for Luke as he's traveling around researching Jesus's life and the effect that it had. So he's writing this, kind of letting go, hey, Theophilus, let me just tell you what I've learned. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Notice here that the term disciples has been transformed into apostles. And a a disciple is somebody who's learning from someone. An apostle is one who is sent. And so these disciples have now become the sent ones to go share the good news. Verse 3, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He's like, okay, check out the nail holes. You want to feel them? Go ahead. You know, do you have some food? I'll eat it in front of you to prove to you that I am not some spirit. I'm not some figment of your imagination. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God, that place where God's sovereign will is done, that Jesus inaugurated. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and asked, well, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? They're still thinking in kind of a provincial way, like your, your main focus, Jesus, is obviously Israel. And he's going, no, my main focus is much larger than that. Jesus' response, he said, it's not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. Remember that word witness in Greek is martero, from where we get, which we get the word martyr. You will be my martyrs, my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in the larger area of Judea, then into those untouchable places like Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the skies as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, about a Sabbath day's walk from the city. On on the Sabbath, you were only allowed to walk a certain amount of distance before it was considered work. And so for them, a Sabbath day's walk was tantamount to about three quarters of a mile. And that's the distance from the Mount of Olives back into Jerusalem. So that's about as far as they walked. When they arrived back at that upstairs room that they'd been renting, those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. At this point, wouldn't you just hate that your name was Judas? You're like, doggone it. You can call me Jay or something like that, you know. I'm going with Jude now. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, in those days, Peter stood up amongst the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared in our ministry. And then you notice that there's like a little panel around this next section. It's kind of an inclusion where Luke inserts a little bit of explanation. With the payment that Judas received for his wickedness, he bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. Wonderful commentary for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. And so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. And now this ends his little inclusion and he comes back to the story. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. He quotes two Psalms of David found Uh, psalms that were written by David during times when there were people who were oppressing him and trying to destroy him. And he points to those two psalms, pulls passages out of them, and goes, hey, this is tantamount to what Judas was trying to do for Jesus. So these are prophetic in some way. Therefore, Peter concludes, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us for the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us, beginning from John's baptism all the way to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us towards his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, also called Barsabbas, known as Justice as well. This guy had lots of names. And Matthias, who was just known as Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. <sighs> that was clear as mud, wasn't it? You guys ready to pray and go home? Okay, a couple of things. I, did, I just want to pull out one thing that we talked about last week, and then we're going to dive into this new section. It's interesting that Jesus kind of, the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he ascends into heaven are both a commissioning and a caution. The commissioning is what I've been doing, you're now going to do. The torch that I have been carrying of the kingdom of God, of of doing God's will and being a vessel for it and sharing that and teaching others as I've been doing with you, you are now going to be those teachers. You are going, I'm sending you out. You are going to be apostles sharing this good news. And you're going to change the world through it. No pressure. But wait, because this is the caution. Don't go yet, but wait. And I'll I'll be honest with you. I'm not a huge fan of waiting. Any, you know, my wife can attest for sure. Uh, You know, we, we can, we can have a wonderful, like, two-week-long road trip and not have any fights about our travel. And then the moment we hit L.A. and L.A. traffic, it's like, ah, you know, and I, I get all tense. And she's like, please just stay in one lane. And I'm like, ah, this lane's going faster. And now this one is. Or, you know, I go to the supermarket and the very first thought is, okay, which is the shortest lane? And then, oh, heavens, you know, grace upon the person who has the audacity to pull out a checkbook and try to pay with a check, right? Forget about it. And this, is, this isn't just me trying to be places in a hurry. Everything that I do tends to be driven by this sense of I want to do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the king of activation. I see the need. I address the need, even if I don't have a clue how to do, deal with that need. So I cannot tell you how many times I put Ikea furniture together incorrectly because I'm just charging ahead. And I have inverted something at the very beginning. So at the very end, I'm like, oh, now I get to take it apart and try it all over again, right? Or... or Okay, Easter, and I'm just going to tell myself. Easter, my, we're all families all together. My aunt brings this giant, like, flimsy plastic tray of deviled eggs, and it's beautiful. I love deviled eggs. She brings this thing, and she goes, oh, okay, I have all of these dishes that have nice little grooves for all of the deviled eggs to go in, and then we can serve them. I'm like, no, 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 everybody wants these. I'll just go ahead and deliver them. So I take the tray from her hand, turn to serve people, and I start peppering the table with deviled eggs as they slide off the tray. So the table's covered, the chairs are covered, the floor is covered. My 89-year-old grandmother is covered in deviled egg. It's like, wayman out, right? That's it. I don't wait well. For better or for worse. You need something done now, call me. You need something done well, call Byron or Chris or somebody else. <laughs> you want it done right, don't call D or myself because we are both dangerous together. I love you, but it's true. <laughs> Cut from the same cloth. So anyway, don't, I don't wait well, and yet that is precisely what Jesus tells his disciples. You are going to be my witnesses. You are going to go share the good news. But wait. Because there's more. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And so until the Holy Spirit comes, wait. And, and then with that, he ascends into heaven. And the disciples are left there kind of like staring up at the sky going, now what? Like, he's gone again? And they're staring at the sky kind of open mouth so much so that the, these two angels have to show up and go, hey, go, hey, hey guys, guys, hey, over here. He's coming back. Don't worry. 
in the same way you saw him go, he will come back. And when he comes back, he's not going to come back simply to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He is going to completely remake all of creation. He will overthrow Satan once and for all. And so even though we live in a broken world, but the kingdom of God is here and present, it's not fully fulfilled. And when he comes back, he will completely fulfill the kingdom of God. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. But until that time, you guys are his representatives. You're his apostles. So get ready. And with that... These, these guys begin this long three-quarters of a mile journey back to this upper room. And I, I can only imagine what was going on in their minds as they're trudging back into Jerusalem, thinking like, he's gone again. The first time was hard enough. We thought he was dead. This time we know who he is. He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed Redeemer. He is the one who was thrown off sin and shame. But now he's told us that we have to go and be his representatives and do what he did to a world that rejected and killed him. Okay. And they walk back into this upper room. And we read here in verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. These are 11 of the 12 disciples. Obviously, Judas Iscariot's not in there. But I want us to notice that the people that Jesus invited into this adventure were not the cream of the crop. These weren't the the young students of the Bible who would go on to become rabbis because they had been able to memorize the entire Old Testament. That was a requirement to be a Pharisee is that you had to have the entire Old Testament memorized. To them, it was their entire Bible. These guys weren't those guys. These were the ones that had dropped out of school, gone back home, gotten a job with dad catching fish. So half of them are fishermen. Then you've got Matthew, who's a tax collector. You've got Simon, who's a zealot, which for those of you who aren't familiar with what a zealot is, these are guys who are so zealous for the kingdom, uh, you know, for the nation of Israel, that they are willing to, if words don't work, they'll grab a knife and they'll make it happen. And these are the kind of rabble that that Jesus has scraped together and said, you're going to be my representatives. You're going to transform the world. Add to that then, we, we move on, that there were a bunch of women mixed into this, which to us is like, well, of course, because women are going to make it work well. It's going to look nice. We're going we're gonna to actually be able to talk about people's emotions, not simply do stuff, right? And yet, in this society, in a, in a patriarchal society like the Jewish culture is, in which women had a very clear place in the home and the men were in society. The men would go to synagogue and learn. The women did not. And then they would come home and it was the men's job to help their wives understand, but it was the man's job to be there. And suddenly we see, however, that men and women were gathered together worshiping God and preparing to be the foundation of the church. Because in the kingdom of God, the old kind of dividing line, Jew and Gentile eradicated, male, female eradicated, slave and free eradicated. Those kind of things no longer separate us because we are all sons and daughters of God, all washed by the same blood, all saved by the same act. And we all have a purpose and a place in the kingdom of God. This is a hugely revolutionary thing. 
verse 14. They joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, we might quickly glance, gloss over that and keep moving, but let me point out that six months prior to Jesus being arrested, crucified, and risen from the dead, his mother and his brothers were not fans of this whole ministry that Jesus was doing. As the crowds were coming to learn from him and be healed by him, Mary and his brothers show up going, Jesus, we need to talk. All they wanted to do is take him home, feed him some pudding, put him in a padded room, and forget about him. Because Jesus has clearly lost his marbles. And yet now, six months later, on the other side of the resurrection, we have Mary and his brothers in the midst of all of the believers worshiping God and praising the name of Jesus Christ because they too are convinced that he is who he claimed to be, namely the the anointed one of God. Furthermore, we know from history and from the book of Acts that two of his brothers became pastors in their own right. James, who became the leader of the church and ultimately wrote the book of James, and Jude, who also became a pastor and wrote the book of Jude. Two of Jesus' brothers, or they would call themselves half-brothers. But this is huge. So obviously the, the, the resurrection transformed more than simply the disciples. It affected his very family. You know, before we move on here for a second, though, I, I, have a, I have a question I've been wrestling with all week, and that's obviously Jesus, after, after his crucifixion, rose from the dead, and he was with the disciples for about 40 days, right? And then the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, which is the 50th day. After the Passover, which means that there's a time of about 10 days between the time when Jesus ascends into heaven and says, hey, guys, you're going to be my representatives, but wait. And when and when the Holy Spirit kind of falls down upon them, 10 days in which he basically says, disciples, you're going to be my witnesses, but you don't have the empowerment to do it now. Why on earth would he wait that time? I mean, Jesus, if he's God, can orchestrate things so that he could have sent the Holy Spirit the moment that he left. I mean, as he is ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit could come screaming down. They could high-five in the clouds, and the Holy Spirit could fall on everybody, and they could be like, good to go. Or the Holy Spirit could come right before he left, and Jesus could help them understand and then release them. Why did he make them wait ten days for the Spirit to come? I mean, that would be tantamount to my wife and I saying, hey, Ethan, Grayson, my seven and my four-year-old, you guys are making dinner. And then she and I take off to go for a walk. If we pulled that, I would expect to see the, hear sirens and probably CPS phone call pretty quickly, right? And yet he chooses to let these disciples stew in Jerusalem for 10 days. I can't say for certain, but I have some thoughts as to why there was that pause in between before the Holy Spirit came and the the movement began. The first thought is this. For 10 days, the disciples had to sit there recognizing both what has been asked of them as well as wrestling with their inability to do it. For 10 days, they had to sit there and recognize there is absolutely no way that we are going to be able to do what Jesus did. There is no way that we are going to change a single person's heart. There is no way that anyone is going to say yes. If after three years of ministry, Jesus has only been able to scrape together 120 people who are gathered together and saying we are his followers, 
what chance do we have? And so, some ten days later, when the Holy Spirit finally falls, and on that one day they go out and begin to speak the good news in tons of different languages that they don't even know, and three thousand people are added to their number in one day. These disciples could not help but declare that it was not by their own strength that they did this, but it was by the power of God in them. Because could you imagine if there wasn't that pause in between where they had to grapple with their humanity? Could you imagine the monsters that Jesus might create if they went out and began to gather in one day almost 30 times the amount of people that he had gathered over three years? Talk about narcissists in the making. And yet God, Jesus protected them from that by allowing them to recognize, I cannot do anything by my own strength. I am completely inadequate. I am not up to this task. And Jesus is going, you're right, you're not. So wait, because I will empower you to do far beyond what you could ever hope or dream. So that's one reason. But there's another one as well, because what were they doing during that time, during those 10 days of waiting in the upper room? They were praying. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. This isn't just once or twice, you know, hey, let's pray at each meal. This was a constant seeking God, because I'll tell you, when I feel overwhelmed, it's in those moments where I just go, I don't know what to do. I know something needs to be done, but I don't know what needs to be done and I don't know how to do it. It's in those moments that I find it so easy to fall to my knees and go, God, I need you. Oh, I need you right now. Would you guide me? Would you direct me? Would you show me what to do? And for 10 days, they were in that posture. God, we need you. I've learned this about prayer. Prayer is less about us telling God something he doesn't know. It's far more about allowing God to show us things that we don't know. And prayer is less about changing God's heart and far more about changing our own. Let me give you one of many examples I could share. When Kathy and I were still dating, uh, we were part of a small group. And I was co-leading with a guy named Jeff. And there was this girl in our group who had this tendency to flirt with the guys who were taken, with Jeff, myself. She would just kind of come close to us and, and you know, get an extra hug and, 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 you know, whatever. And Kathy's, you know, for Jeff and I, were like, oh, whatever. She's just, she's just her. And Kathy's hackles were up, right? She's just like, danger, no, my, my man, don't, don't even. And for weeks, as, we would be dri- as I would be driving her home, she'd be like, that girl is, no, is, not, is bad news. Like, you need to be careful. You need to have boundaries with her because she doesn't respect boundaries. So f- several weeks into this, Kathy felt convicted one day that every time that she got angry at this girl, every time the thought of her came up and she just wanted to, like, start tearing her apart in her mind, she used that as a prompting to pray for her, which I thought was a great idea, and I've learned from that, that every time I start feeling something, it, use it as a prompting. So she started praying for this girl. And I'm sure that at first those prayers were, God, make her stop. Convict her, right? Show her what she's doing. And over the couple of weeks that she was praying for her, God began to change Kathy's heart towards this girl, began to soften it. So after several weeks, she began to recognize what was underneath this for this girl. Because this girl was a single mother from a broken marriage, 
And what Kathy realized is she wasn't cozying up to us because she was hoping for a relationship. She was cozying up to us because she wanted, she was seeking out those men who were safe and strong and stable so that she could have some affirmation that she was not broken beyond repair. That she was still acceptable. And ironically, in the process of doing this, the women had this tendency to kind of hold her at arm's length because I think you ladies have a little bit more discernment than we guys do. And Kathy went, oh my gosh, she doesn't even see this, but her, her attempt to heal a wound in her heart is only exacerbating it. And Kathy's heart broke for her. And so her prayers changed from God make her stop to God help her to see, bring somebody into her life that can walk with her and help her heal in this area. And very quickly, the Holy Spirit convicted Kathy. It's like, why don't you be that person? Oh, um, okay, well... God, if you want me to pray with her, if you want me to share with her, then please orchestrate it. Make it happen. And for several weeks, Kathy was praying that prayer. She, she recognized what was going on. Her heart was broken for this girl. God, you set it up. About three weeks later in our small group, and I may be, I, my wife is such a perfectionist, I may be off on the timing and, and little bitty details, but I'm doing my best, okay? <laughs> like three weeks later, from my recollection, this girl comes up to Kathy either before or after group and goes, can I talk to you? So they go out on the patio. And she goes, I don't get it. Like, I, I, I care for people. I love people. I love being a part of this group. But it feels like the girls in our group kind of hold me at arm's length. And I have felt this in other groups I've been a part of. And I don't understand it. Now, had this girl come up to Kathy two months prior, before she'd started this process of praying for her, I don't know how she would have responded. She may have used it as an opportunity to kind of take that shot, maybe unload both barrels on her, right? Oh, good, finally I get to tell you off. But she had gone from being an enemy to being somebody that Kathy loved and had a heart for, and so she leaned into this with her and began to help walk through what was really underneath it. I mean, my wife's a counselor. She does this well, but God really prepared her for this conversation. And fast forward... This girl who had seemed like an enemy to my wife has become a close friend of our family. And her son, who was like five years old at the time, is getting married now. It's crazy. It just reminds me that I'm getting older, right? But, but that, to me, is such a beautiful picture of how prayer doesn't just change circumstances. Prayer changes our hearts. And for ten days, these disciples are forced to grapple with something that's far larger than they can possibly hope to accomplish. And their only recourse is to pray together. And I, don't, I have no doubt that during those ten days, God began to use that prayer to unify them as a body. They would become the foundation of this fledgling church that we are a part of to this day. And during that time, he would shape and prepare their hearts to be receptacles of his Holy Spirit that would fall upon them and then begin to radically transform the world, beginning in Jerusalem and kind of reverberating out from there. So why did Jesus give this pause? First, for them to recognize that they desperately needed the Spirit. And then secondly, to allow prayer to begin to shape and mold their hearts so that they could be used by him that they would be receptive to the Spirit's leading and guiding. However, they weren't just praying during this time because they had some business that they needed to deal with. Probably the biggest piece of business they needed to deal with was this black mark on the early church. 
by the name of Judas Iscariot. A guy who had been a member of Jesus' inner circle. One of his twelve. The guy who had been entrusted with the money bag. And yet, when push came to shove, he betrayed Jesus. Sold him out for pittance. Thirty pieces of silver. And then, once Jesus was arrested and killed, the shame and the guilt of what Judas had done began to gnaw at him so much so that he wanted nothing to do with this money. Have you ever found that the very thing that you hunger for, the very thing you think you need, that you're tempted by, once you have it, and once it's kind of over, you're like, I don't want anything to do with this. And that's precisely how Judas felt towards this little bag of money. And so he tried to give it back. We read in the book of Matthew, it's not explained here in Acts, but in the book of Matthew we see that he tried to give it back and they wouldn't take it back in the temple. They're like, no, we don't want that blood money. That's, that's unclean. And so finally he just re- resorted to throwing it into the temple and running away. And they couldn't put that money back into the coffers because to them this was unclean money, unfit to, to be used in the churches. You know what they used it for? They purchased a field that would one day become a graveyard for non-Jews, for the Gentiles. And it's in that plot of land that they purchased with the money that Judas had sold Jesus out, that Judas ultimately gave up and committed suicide. Now here in the book of Acts, we read that according to Luke's uh, understanding as he's been talking to people, that he literally fell down and his entrails burst out and that's how he died. In the book of Matthew, we read that he hung himself. And this is one of those things that we, we wrestle in, in, in the church to go, how do we make these two, how do these correspond? Is there any, you know, connection here or do they contradict one another? Some people have explained, well, here's what happened is that he hung himself and his body hung there for a while and the body started to decompose. And then either the rope broke or somebody cut him down. And when he fell down, his, entrail, his body broke open, his entrails burst out. Lovely picture. I'll be honest with you, I've always had a hard time with that, excuse, uh, that explanation because it feels like a bit of a stretch. As I was studying this week, one of the things that I ran across I, is that this may very well be one of these um, language things where we are filling a word with our own definition of what that word means as opposed to what that, that word actually meant. Because to us, when we hear the word hung himself, we think noose around the neck, over the tree, and all that kind of stuff. Ian, Cameron, I'm so glad you guys are still awake right now as we're talking about this. You're most. So that's what I'm picturing it as, right? He hung himself by a rope and he hung there, which may have been the case. However, biblically, there's a number of examples of places where when they say use the word hung, what they really meant, and this is how people typically killed people, was putting a, you know, hanging their body on a stake impaling them. In fact, in the book of Esther, we read that two men were caught and were going to be killed. And so they built gallows and they, they hung them on the gallows, not meaning that they hung them with a rope, but rather they impaled them as the Persians had a tendency to do. And so possibly, and I'm not saying that this is for sure, but this seems more understandable to me. Judas impaled himself in that place, on a sharp stick or something, and when he fell forward onto that stick, it burst, whatever, you know, and you get, you don't even have, you know, you get the picture, all right? But how it happened, and exactly whether it was with a rope or with a stake, is beside the point. The point is that this early church, before they've ever 
preached their first sermon before they've ever had their first convert has to wrestle with the fact that one of their own betrayed their risen Savior and killed himself. And everyone has heard about it in Jerusalem. Talk about a black mark that you have to grapple with. And so Peter stands up amongst the disciples and he says, listen, guys. What Judas did was prophesied in Scripture. He had to do it to fulfill Scripture. He betrayed Jesus because Jesus needed to die. And he was the tool that God used to do that. However, let's not dwell on that. Rather, let's move forward, look forward, and let's, it, we need to find another replacement for him. We need to fill his slot. Now, why did they need to do that? Why couldn't they just have 11 apostles as opposed to 12? I believe that, first off, Peter was looking at Scripture and saying, well, may another take his place of leadership. We need to replace him. So there's a a, a scriptural kind of mandate that Peter feels like Scripture was speaking to him in that moment, saying we need to do this. But then secondly, I think he stepped back and he went, well, you know, 12 is a very important number theologically. I mean, God chose the people of Israel to be a nation to represent him, and he had 12 tribes. When Jesus had all of these people following him, he chose 12 disciples. And so in keeping with that model, we need to have 12 apostles. We need to replace him. Now, I believe that that this is what I would term a... um, more of a declarative or a descriptive passage as opposed to a, um, what is the term? Can you, can you throw that one up there? Do I have that there? A, a, a descriptive as opposed, no, that's not helping. Hold on a second. The coffee has kicked in. Um, oh, a, a prescriptive. There we go. Okay, back on track. Is it descriptive as opposed to a prescriptive Uh, passage. What do I mean by that? A prescriptive passage is something that prescribes for all believers all throughout all of the ages, a certain way of living. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hinges upon those two things. That is prescriptive. doesn't matter when we're living, what time we're living in. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is normative for your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is how the rest of the world will know that you are my disciples, by the way you love one another. His whole, you know, um, Sermon on the Mount, full of prescriptive passages. In contrast, you have descriptive passages that simply describe what was actually going on. A decision that was made that is not necessarily normative for how the church should operate. So just because the disciples who are now apostles say we need to replace Judas so we can have 12 apostles, that does not mean that when we are going to choose elders, we need to go, well, we need 12. We need 12 elder pastors. End of story. Now, that may be the case, but we're not sinning if we have 9 or 10 or 11 or 14. It simply is how they chose to operate. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So Peter says, we need to choose someone else. And they agree. Okay, yeah, we agree. Let's, let's choose someone. So, then they begin to look for the criteria. 
Verse 21. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us, beginning from John's baptism all the way to the time when Jesus was taken from us. Meaning, and this was kind of an eye-opener for me when I first saw it, meaning that there were actually people that had been following Jesus from the very beginning who had not been chosen as his disciples. We, we talk about the 12, but there were probably dozens of people that had been with him from the very beginning. And out of that pool of people, they choose two guys. They come up with a short list. I'm sure they were being prayerful in that because they're praying constantly, but they prayerfully chose two guys that met the criteria that they had been following Jesus from the very beginning. They were eyewitnesses because it's difficult to be an apostle one sent to share your eyewitness testimony if you haven't been an eyewitness. And so they nominated, verse 23, they nominated two men, Joseph, with all of his different names, known as Barsabbas and Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, we've done our best in identifying two. But you, you know everyone's heart. So show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry with Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they broke out the dice. Come on, baby. Right? Because that's how we figure out stuff is we are going to cast lots. Now, casting lots in that day probably looked something like they, they would either have a, a, a tablet they would write the names on either side and then they shook it and threw it and whichever side landed you know, it's kind of similar to us, um, you know, flipping a coin or drawing a straw or throwing dice. It could have also been that they had a name on each of these different, um, two different tablets and they shook it and which one fell out. But suffice it to say, the mindset was, we do not want to ever have the question that Matthias got chosen over, you know, uh, Barsabbas because, you know, Peter liked him more. They went fishing together or something like that. We don't ever want anybody to question it, so we're going to put this into God's hands and we're going to use chance to ultimately determine who is chosen. And in fact, casting lots was used all throughout the Old Testament as a way to identify God's will. And there's a, a proverb. You don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to read it to you really quickly. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So in their mindset, you want to know God's will? You don't want to go off of your own human intuition? Then you use this chance thing and God will determine how it falls. We might say, you know, man flips a coin, but God ultimately determines how it lands. So does that mean then that we should elect all of our elders and all of our pastors and make every decision by a flip of a coin or a rolling of a die or pulling of straws or something. No. Again, I believe that this is more descriptive than prescriptive. But I've got more evidence than that. You see, there are 70 references in the Old Testament to casting lots. And there are seven references to casting lots in the New Testament, most of them in the Gospels and one time in Acts. Right here. And this is the last thing that we read about the, the disciples doing prior to the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And from that moment on, we don't read about a single time when people cast lots to try to determine God's will. Because with the giving of the Holy Spirit, I would suggest, you no longer need to be dependent upon chance. You no longer need to pull out your, your coin or you no longer need to throw dice to try to figure out what God wants. You have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit residing within us, guiding, leading, and directing his people. 
And so long as we are being prayerfully transformed day after day and and, and submitting our will, we can know the will of God. Be renewed or, or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Romans 12, 2. So up to this point, the best way to know God's will, roll some dice. After the giving of the Holy Spirit, you no longer need to do that because the Spirit will guide their decisions. Okay, a couple of things as I wrap up this morning. I understand that this can be a confusing passage, and I've just tried to pull out some of the salient points for us. Just to remind us of where we've been. First, God says, or Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. You are going to shake the foundation of this world. But before you try to go and do that by your own strength, wait. Because you need empowerment from me. You will not accomplish anything apart from my spirit. At least nothing that will have any lasting value. I have found that to be the case in my own life. I can, I can have the best message prepared. I can, do, I can pour myself out until I am exhausted. And if God isn't in it, it's going to fall on deaf ears. It won't transform a single person's heart. Or... I can totally stumble all over my tongue, destroy, you know, just basically be embarrassed by myself, and yet God can use even those times to radically transform a life. You know, I have found the times that I am most confident are the times that I am least effective, and the times that I am least confident, it seems like the Holy Spirit shows up and says, oh good, now that you're out of the way, I can be glorified. Now that it's no longer going to be about making Eric's name great and building Eric's kingdom, good, now I can get the glory. Let's do this. And so Jesus says, prepare yourself. But wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And during that time, they used prayer to, to prepare their hearts. And they were shaped by that time of prayer. We cannot underestimate the importance of prayer. I think it is the least appreciated and most you know, underutilized weapon that we have in this spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. Prayer is like that, that field phone that we use to call in airstrikes. And that airstrike is not our power, it's his power. All we can do when we're not willing to use prayer, when we have on the armor of God, all we can do is hunker down and basically be in a defensive posture. But that field phone, that prayer is an offensive weapon. And it shapes and molds us. And then we saw Peter beginning to step up as a leader in this early fledgling church and and explain, you know, we've got to replace Judas. And it's interesting. My last thought is just I want to compare two failures, Peter and Judas, because both of these guys were disciples of Jesus. Both of them had been invited into this three-year adventure of following and learning from him. Both of them had seen him perform miracles, had been fed by him, had learned around the campfire by him. And on the night when Jesus was arrested, both of these men failed Jesus. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Not once, but three times. And yet, from that point on, the trajectory of their lives varied radically because Judas killed himself. Peter became the leader of this fledgling church. And I'm left asking, why 
the radical discrepancy in the trajectory of their lives after that fateful night. The only answer I can come up with is because when they were faced with their sin, when they were faced with their failure, when they were faced with what they had done, Judas ran from Jesus, Peter ran towards him, or if we're being technical, swam towards him, right? He sees him as he's fishing on the boat because he's gone back to his old way of life, going back to fishing. And when he sees Jesus on the boat, I think it's Jesus. He takes his clothes off and he jumps in the water and he swims to shore. He's a very person. I totally get him because he's an activator. I can't wait till they row the boat to shore. I'm swimming. Peter took his sin. He took his shame. He took his guilt. He took his embarrassment to Jesus and he let Jesus deal with it. Judas took all of that to the grave. And that made all the difference. Why does this matter for us? Because it's not a question of who we're going to be like. Judas or Peter. We are like them both. We already have failed. We have already fallen radically short of Jesus' expectation. We are not holy as he is holy. We are sinful. We are broken. And our hearts are flawed and, and, and drawn towards things that ultimately hinder our relationship with God and hinder our ability to be used by the Holy Spirit. Not only have we failed him, we will continue to do so throughout our lives. So it's not a matter of who we're going to be like. It's a matter of who we will respond like when we are faced with our brokenness, when we are faced with our imperfections, when we're faced with our shame. When we like that, that, that young kid who had basically said, Dad, I want my inheritance. I don't want to wait for you to die. And then he'd gone off and blown it. And he finds himself covered in the muck of the pigsty, wanting to fill his stomach with the junk that he's feeding these pigs. He's ashamed? Absolutely. Are we ashamed? Absolutely. The question is, do we try to clean ourselves up so that we'll be worthy to walk home? Or do we just come home and, 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 and get down on our knees and go, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Here I am. And I need you to clean me up because quite honestly, I can't do it myself. And the choice is yours. How will you respond? Will you respond like Judas and run in your shame? Like Adam and Eve and hide in your shame? Or will you come to the foot of the cross and say, here I am. Perfectly imperfect. And I desperately need you. And that's the beauty of the cross is that in one moment God declared once and for all that I am a God who rehabilitates sinners. Who takes sinners and makes them saints. Who takes prodigals and says, welcome home, my son, my daughter. So you don't have to remain estranged. You don't have to try to fix it on your own. You can simply come as you are and allow me to do in you what you could never do for yourself. And not only will I restore you back into relationship with me, but I will use you to be my representative because I love to take broken, imperfect people because they make the perfect representatives to share the good news that I love you. So I'm going to invite Pete to come forward.
We're going to take a time of responding to this. And you can respond in a lot of different ways. He's going to play a couple of songs that are reflective. And you may just want to sit there and listen to those words. A lot of times we sing words that we don't even really listen to. Perhaps for part of this time you just want to listen to those words. Perhaps you want to have a conversation with God. Maybe there are some things you've been holding on to that you haven't really been willing to lay down. And either in your seats or or as we did last week, we have all this space. And if you just want to come and get down on your knees or lay down on the ground, because oftentimes our hearts follow the posture of our bodies. It's why we stand up and we put our hands up during worship as a way of saying, God, I give you the glory. And sometimes it's the best place to be able to truly be repentant and humble is on our knees or on our faces. And so if you want to get comfortable, you know, if you want to get on your face, you're welcome to. But let's just spend a few minutes again with that prayer of David found in Psalm 139. Search me and know me, God. Know my innermost thoughts. Know the things that get in the way and ultimately lead me back into your arms and use me, Father. So God, we give you this time as we respond to you.